0: Hey there, it's Sam Eichen, your host. I know you were expecting the theme music to kick off as soon as you hit play, but I just want to jump in and explain something before we kick off this episode. So we started this show in the middle of lockdown, back in 2020, when the world had gone crazy and everybody was worried about being face-to-face. So we do everything completely remotely and we go to great lengths to get the best audio that we can with what we have. In this episode, however... We've fallen a little bit short of our regular standard, and I'm sorry about that. Some of the interviews we've done are a little bit scratchy, and one of them's done over the phone. But this is a really important story to tell, and I promise you, it's worth it. So that's it for my disclaimer. On with the show.
1: Back in the day, we are looking at someone to blame for an eating disorder, whether it was within the family or by something that had happened in a person's life.
2: Families were excluded from the treatment in hospitals. They were treated appallingly.
3: It was almost voyeuristic um, and othering and this strange perspective of almost morbid curiosity for an experience which was outside of the quote-unquote normal. It was not at all humanising, um, not at all holistic or person-centred or and any of these other words that we, we like to aspire to, to show in our care.
2: A friend rang and said, oh, have you heard X's daughter's got bulimia? And I said, oh, that's just terrible. Get her to ring me and I'll help her out. She said, well, it's
1: hardly surprising.
2: Look at the mother.
1: You know, these sort of comments. If I take a helicopter view of what's happened over the past 20 years, things have changed significantly. And I think if we can achieve what we have in 20 years, I can't wait to see what we can do 20 years ahead of us.
0: Over the past two decades, our understanding of mental health conditions, including eating disorders, has grown exponentially. This is Butterfly Let's Talk. I'm Sam Eichen, and this is a pretty special episode for us. This one's being released in May 2022, 20 years after the Butterfly Foundation was first created. And while we want to have a look back so that we can appreciate how far we've come over the last two decades, we're also going to look forward at what could be in store in the next 20 years. My name's Claire Middleton, and I founded
2: the Butterfly Foundation in well, nearly 20 years ago, actually, in
0: 2002. We couldn't think of a better person to go first than the woman who pioneered the way, creating Australia's first organisation representing people affected by eating disorders and negative body image issues.
2: And I have been a sufferer of binge eating, bulimia, anorexia, I've suffered depression and anxiety amongst all of that. And in response to my two daughters getting anorexia and discovering that there was absolutely no help that was effective, I could see lots of flaws in the system and so started by applying.
0: Could we go back 20 years and talk yeah. about what was the state of awareness and attitude toward eating disorders 20 years ago? What was it like?
2: It was absolutely appalling. So when my daughters got sick, one before the other, I was just terrified because I having been there. And I was sort of saying, you know, don't do this. Please don't do this.
0: Having been there from the very start, Claire Middleton has seen the best and the worst of how eating disorders are treated through the health system. She's also seen a shift in the way that society views and talks about them.
2: I think a classic is after I'd launched and the the press got hold of, you know, the whole story. And I got a request from a magazine to do a cover story on the girls and the foundation. And one of the questions was, could you please provide a photograph of your girls at their worst? And I said, yeah, sure, but you can do it yourself. I said, just print a black page. And she said, what are you talking about? I said, you don't understand. An eating disorder is a mental illness. And at their worst, it was like, it was just so dark and so black. But I knew what she was wanting. She was wanting to focus on the physicality. And I wasn't going to give it to her.
0: And I didn't give it to her. Claire has always been aware of the stereotypes and the harm that they can cause. That's obviously what the magazine editor wanted to amplify with the pictures. These days, we know that you can't tell if somebody has an eating disorder by the way they look or by any other immediately identifiable trait about them. The misconceptions and stigmas around eating disorders are shifting, but there are still many hard-to-budge myths. While we've steadily been chipping away at those, we still have further to go with research, diagnosis and care to reduce the prevalence of eating disorders. So 20 years ago, what was it like dealing with treatment and recovery way back then?
1: Trying to access treatment specifically for an eating disorders was so complex. I remember making several calls and I had that many officers turn me down saying, oh, we don't treat eating disorders, yet I was calling mental health specialists. So when it came to actually identifying what my initial concern or problem was in terms of why I was actually turning up to appointment, it was really difficult at the time that you to even find someone to support that access to care, to find treatment specifically for an eating disorder or even identifying as having an eating disorder was too complex. My name is Shannon Calvert and I'm based in Western Australia, but I work across the eating disorder and mental health and palliative care sector uh, statewide, but also on a national level as well. And I guess my, my main area of expertise is around lived experience, advocacy and engagement.
0: Community awareness around the existence of eating disorders has increased significantly and the understanding of those illnesses has evolved. Shannon, who works in the healthcare sector, also has a lived experience with an eating disorder herself.
1: Personally, I lived with a severe and enduring eating disorder for, gosh, um, Almost 30 years. So like I said, I'm 45 now. So I think pretty much most of my life was severely impacted by experiencing an eating disorder. And and with most eating disorders, I had the co-occurring and co-existing issues of other mental health challenges, such as trauma and anxiety and depression. It certainly didn't take 30 years for me to recover from an eating disorder. In fact, it was probably the last few years of really supportive interventions that got me to, to where I am now. I never even thought I'd be in a position to to work in the field now so yes had the privilege of of getting to where I am now knowing that there was important conversations that needed to be had.
0: So glad that you did because you're still so heavily involved. Can we go back a couple of decades? What is the state of awareness like 20 years ago compared to today?
1: I think for me I think the internal stigma was quite profound and I think it took a lot of insight and perspective taking along the way to to realize how much I blamed myself for my eating disorder. But I think back in the day, I remember it was still clear what people understood eating disorders to be a choice. We're looking at someone to blame for an eating disorder, whether it was within the family or by something that had happened in a person's life. It's not as, as simple as that, so to speak. It actually isn't a person's choice. It's not someone's fault as well. It, it is just, unfortunately, it has a complex nature to it. And the wonderful opportunity of realising that people can actually recover from eating disorders, and that's any eating disorder as well. Whereas back in the day, I think it was too complex. And I think very difficult for people to want to take responsibility in treating eating disorders now.
0: If we could only go back in time knowing what we know now. We now know that families and carers play one of the most important roles in a holistic recovery program.
2: Families were excluded from the treatment in hospitals. They were treated appallingly. A friend once said to me, "Who was in the field?" She said, uh, you know, Claire, when someone has an eating disorder, it's not just the sufferer who has the eating disorder. It's actually the whole family." And this was before we knew it was a genetic. You know, had, there was a genetic component to it. And so, it for me is to encourage people to listen to me at those early ANZAD conferences where I was the only consumer, and. I would just stand up constantly and put my hand up constantly and say, no, it's actually not like that. No, no, you're looking at the, the wrong way. You've got to include the family. Like, you know, no one's to blame here. But yeah. everyone has an opportunity to be part of
0: the recovery in 20 years, we've seen some significant changes. One of the most profound is the introduction of residential clinics. For example, there's Wanda Narrator on the Gold Coast, and other similar clinics are either operating or in development all around the country.
2: People were just put into hospital programs like the Royal Melbourne, you know, One North, I think they called it, and just it was almost like, well, we'll make everything so uncomfortable until you eat. And then there were kids put into hospitals on the, like, the mother and baby unit. There was no designated eating disorder treatment. And even when people were so sick with anorexia and they needed specialist care, there was none. So they'd go on a medical ward, but none of the nurses, let alone the doctors, had any specialist training in how to treat these individuals or understand them. Training people who had a lived experience, training them to be coaches, because they, I mean, sure, there are lots of health service professionals now who are, special, who are trained and specialised. But just that sharing of the, your journey in a very healthy way, in a positive way, that has really changed the scene worldwide, I think. It's respecting people who've suffered. It's respecting that your journey is going to help others.
1: You're actually an amazingly important part of the healing of others going forward. I needed some critical interventions when it came to medical treatment as well as mental health treatment. And unfortunately I was put in a very complex under-resourced public service that didn't know how to treat eating disorders. So at the time, and I have to believe that they were doing the best with what they had, I guess for them they, they felt that the form of intervention that they, that they followed was the best way to kind of contain or maintain my eating disorder, but it was probably more traumatic than anything else.
3: I'm a uni student doing my honours in psychology. I'm a speaker, advocate and writer, and I really like to share my lived experience of mental ill health and eating disorders on research, um, advocacy projects, and also the design of clinical programs, really to help ensure that any decision that is being made in the mental health system includes the voices of the communities that they seek to serve.
0: This is Melissa Keller-Tuberg. She works as an advocate for mental illness and eating disorders. As a 24-year-old, she doesn't have two decades of lived experience to share with us, but she has experienced how deficient the system was even in the past 10 years.
3: I remember the first time that I was seeking care, which thankfully my family was really supportive and it was quite early on, um, but the doctor that I um, was seeing said oh this is this is normal for teenage girls to be being restrictive I suppose or um, overly aware of their bodies and then um, yeah then set then prescribed me medication for stomach ulcer tablets because he thought that it was more likely that my eating behaviors were due to some sort of medical reason rather than a socio-cultural or or some sort of mental health issue going on
0: Now Mel has come up through the ranks quite quickly, and she's one of the country's most prominent eating disorder advocates. She has a really good understanding of the way things were, you know, back in the bad old days.
3: Yeah, in the bad old days. I think that's an appropriate way to describe it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Look, I'd say the the most insight that I can give about that, given that I'm 24, is what I knew about eating disorders growing up, especially before I developed an eating disorder myself, how it was portrayed in the media and even in some of these documentaries that we used to watch in health classes at school, and it was 100% always only including emaciated um, white upper middle class women. It was almost voyeuristic um, and othering and this strange perspective of almost morbid curiosity for an experience which was outside of the quote unquote normal. It was not at all humanizing, um, not at all holistic or person-centered or and any of these other words that we, we like to aspire to, to show in our care today. I do fit the stereotype of who an eating disorder impacts, um, and still it almost felt like I I had to prove that I could align with that in order to feel like I deserved care. Um, so sometimes <laughs> I reflect on that whole experience, and it just makes me – it, it, it really moves me and makes me worried about the, the state of conversations in um, the mental health space, especially back then. Um, I if mean, they, if they made me feel that way, how they would make other people feel as well.
0: Thankfully, the bad old days are well and truly in the rear view mirror. Things have evolved for the better. But what can we learn from those mistakes that we made in the past?
1: think the fact that we have allies out there when it comes to those that work in the professional field and there's a lot of people that are really open to whether they've experienced an eating disorder or not or even um are out there to support people with eating disorders i think they're making every effort to to change the language and change the conversations at the table so that we we are more vulnerable that we are more prepared to to understand more not only as um in the professional field but also in the community as well, which is so important.
0: So it sounds like we're on the right track at least. But there are still massive challenges that health professionals face.
1: I think the challenge with eating disorders is we we do identify an eating disorder as a mental illness. However, it does have the physical complexities and, and can impact a person's physical well being as well. And I think to manage the two, it wasn't black and white for some specialists to manage. And I think because people needed more stronger interventions at times, you know, to get some support medically as well as uh, mentally, I think people find it was too complex. It was just too hard. Whereas now I think more sectors are taking ownership, that our eating disorders are indeed everybody's business and and that people also have with eating disorders will likely have co-occurring and co-existing issues. So it's not just something that you don't just kind of develop an eating disorder and then get over it. You know, you may have other challenges that come into play. So you need access to sort of wraparound care, whether it's for your mental or physical health.
3: If I was to pin that down into one statement or one Thing that could help fix all of that, it would be listening to the voices of people with lived experience. Um, because so much of the time, um, these really complex and difficult issues, um, if, you, if you ask and listen to someone who's really been through this stuff and has understood their own recovery journey or going through a recovery journey, they can provide so many valuable insights
1: if i take a helicopter view of what's happened over the past 20 years things have changed significantly and i think if we can achieve what we have in 20 years i can't wait to see what we can do 20 years ahead of us and i think the fact that we are bringing eating disorders to the table and we are continuously advocating that eating disorders are indeed everybody's business and that everybody has a right to access some form of support out there in the community I just feel that the more we continue to respectfully use our voices and involve and engage with people of lived experience, and that includes consumers, that includes carers, their families and supports, I think we will do some critical work and make some really important changes as well. You've got to be really encouraged and taught how to improve your self-esteem
2: and really start to love yourself and be proud of yourself. And that's when you find your identity. And, and that is, I think, when people start to recover, when they start to recognize that they are worthy, they are equal, and they are deserving of living a life like all other people.
1: You know, we're learning something new about eating disorders every day. Most importantly now, though, I think, it is becoming more evident that eating disorders don't discriminate. And and when I say they don't discriminate by that, I mean we're identifying that there's various different types of eating disorders. You know, 20 years ago, I think we were still very familiar with anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, but, you know, now we're becoming more familiar. We're understanding the prevalence of uh, eating disorders such as binge eating disorder. In fact, that's probably one of the disorders that impacts most Australians or even people around the world. Yet it's probably one of the most misunderstood. So, you know, I think we're just bringing more of that to light. And we're starting to talk about the various different types of eating disorders and and the fact that it can impact anybody at any age and stage of their life, but also taking into account that it impacts men, it it, uh, impacts people with different sexual backgrounds, religious backgrounds and cultural backgrounds as well. So um, whereas I don't think we have really had those conversations so openly 20 years ago
3: we definitely have made a lot of a lot of progress. I always feel like body image concerns and um, disordered eating or eating disorders is this like considered to be some like weirdly specific um or a, like an added extra on the side of mental health conversations. You know, you go to your GP and you say, "I'm struggling with my mental health," and they'll get you to do a depression and anxiety questionnaire. But I think it's less common for, people to have conversations about body image early on as just another part of mental health. It's, it's almost seen as we'll talk about that when it comes to that, or when we can, when you almost, even sometimes when you look like you're someone who we should talk to about that. It's Literally everybody with a body has body image. So if, you know, if you're going to talk about your overall health and well being, it should be a part of the conversation as, as there's other mental health factors like depression and anxiety.
0: There's no doubt we still have a long way to go, but we do need to acknowledge the progress that we've made. Every day, we're getting closer to where we need to be through groups like the National Eating Disorder Collaboration, Eating Disorders Families Australia, the Australian and New Zealand Academy of Eating Disorders, and of course, Butterfly. If you've missed any of those, don't worry. There are links in the show notes. You can check them out when it's convenient to do so. Focusing in on Butterfly for a second, we've seen the creation of the National Helpline, providing free, confidential, inclusive support and information from trained clinicians seven days a week. There's a referral database to help you find the right professionals for your recovery team. There's also support groups and programs for people in recovery and their carers. And there's youth programs designed for people aged 18 to 24. These are just a few of the innovations and services that are already available.
2: And I'm very proud of, of what Butterfly has become. Very proud of how it has just. Oh, so diverse! I just love the way that it reaches out to every single person, you know, either with a disability or um, LGBTQI plus. just I've loved watching that's reached to different ethnicities, to um, peoples of, of First, Na- and the First Nation, First Nation people. Everything I love, love, love that they've taken it so far and they're uh, there. There's no judgment. Just get out there and help anyone who suffers from these hideous illnesses.
0: It's clear that eating disorders are complicated, multifaceted illnesses that require a unique and tailored treatment. And we know that people can completely and fully recover from eating disorders. By investing more into prevention, increasing services, reducing obstacles for seeking help, and learning to be accepting of body diversity, we can reduce the likelihood of body dissatisfaction and, as a consequence, reduce the incidence of eating disorders. But it's possible that treatment and prevention 20 years from now will look completely different to what we see currently.
1: One of the things that I am conscious of is we hear these great outcomes, which I'm, I'm thrilled about, but we don't stop there. As we all know that this work needs to continue and it needs to progress. We do need more access to care, but we also need to capacity build the community so the community needs those resources as well to say, you know, that we can support people with eating disorders and we don't necessarily just need to be specialised. I think that the development of of research, and I think this is something that's continuing and I think needs to continue, especially when it comes to research and eating disorders. I mean, we know that evidence-based treatment is the key element uh, to support somebody towards
3: recovery. When it comes to improving, say, for example, research questions, I think we need to do more research on the experiences of trans, gender diverse and men with eating disorders, I mean, again, we need to listen to the community. That's what they're asking for. If you're thinking about clinical services, I think we need to reduce weight stigma and weight bias in eating disorder services. And how are we going to do that? Well, we need to understand what are the experiences of people who have gone through this and, and felt that they have um, their care is impacted by weight bias. Like We need to ask what people are experiencing in order to fix that.
0: Another thing Mel mentions is the divide between mental health and physical health, when really they're so deeply intertwined, we shouldn't be separating them. Rather, we need to concentrate on overall health itself, both mental and physical, all at once.
3: Good mental health leads to good physical health, like and vice versa. And you know, making unwarranted comments, it just absolutely does not help. When it comes to thinking about prevention in the future, what I would like to see is a consistent and cohesive message from public health, as well as mental and physical health organizations, which is like advocating for concepts like intuitive eating and good mental health in order to yeah lead to better outcomes for everyone rather than this. I'm on the mental health side. I'm on the physical health side and people getting confused or, um, Leading, leading to more fat phobia, to be frank.
0: There are millions of Australians who have at some point been affected by an eating disorder, and that's not including the multitude of people who go undiagnosed. So while it's still great that we're going in the right direction and the sector is receiving funding, there are still things that need to happen to continue moving in the right direction.
1: I think we need to capacity build the workforce as well. The healthcare system is incredibly stretched at the moment. I think we need to support uh, GPs, um, we know that GPs are front and center when it comes to diagnosing eating disorders, and also have, you know providing that early intervention. And if we can support people to receive earlier intervention, then I think that it doesn't become so complex. And provide so much pressure on the sector as well, and I think research is critical. And and we do have that incredible the news about the Australian, Research and Translation Centre for Eating Disorders starting, which is groundbreaking. And I can't wait actually to see the work that will come from that.
0: That absolutely, I'm I'm very much looking forward to that. I'm very happy you said about building capacity for GPs as well, because that's something that uh, of, of the lived experience people that I speak to, so many of them have just got this this burning anger of you know their first gp interaction which was negative but then again the people who have run into a gp who has really helped them have just sung their praises and said it was the best thing that's ever happened and so turning that experience around and making sure that the you know that weighs more in the towards the positive than the negative i think is a massive step in the right direction
1: so the announcement of the research center uh The grant specifically was announced earlier this year, um, and that was actually awarded to the University of Sydney and inside our Institute for Eating Disorders to lead the consortium. So the consortium in itself will be a collective group of top research facilities across Australia, but it's also having an international cohort that will be involved in that process, but following a very strong lived experience ethos. And by that, I mean that they will integrate lived experience engagement and co-production of the work that they're doing across all areas of research, even from the governance level with the research centre. So I know that it's a work in progress at the moment in terms of its development.
0: All of our guests agreed that more research is essential and that including the voices of lived experience will be the key to better outcomes for everyone affected by eating disorders. But what else does the future hold for eating disorder prevention, diagnosis and care? I asked all of our guests to gaze into their crystal balls and tell me what they saw in the future. What excites
2: me the most is, I think, the medicine. You know, I think that there will be a a cure which is going to shortcut the recovery. I think so many people are working on it. And um, whether that's going to be a medical treatment or whether it's going to be intervention directly into the brain, to a part of the brain, or more work in the genetics, you know. I'm putting my faith in science, but I think also what's going to change is that more and more and more people who survive this want to help other people. Because it's called sort of the secret language of eating disorders. That was the title of a a book when um, my kids were first sick, and it is a secret language. And when you get well, because you understand that language, all you've got to do is communicate that language, communicate in that way to people who suffer to encourage them to get well, to encourage them to engage with that multidisciplinary team. And it's hard. You know, it's a lot of work is required of the sufferer, but a lot of work is required of the family. But, you know, you can get there, and there's always hope. Always, always hope that you will, you will reclaim your life, always. So for the next gosh, 120 years, okay, I hope it's gone. I just hope that there's just a, a treatment like any other chronic, terrible illness that young people get or older people get. I hope you present to your doctor and they treat it and you get that. How good would that be?
1: I think the more that we learn, the more that we understand about eating disorders and potentially look towards preventing eating disorders, I I feel strongly that even the term severe and enduring or a long-term eating disorder, we, we think 20 years ahead. I feel confident that people with an extensive history like mine won't have to say that they lived with an eating disorder for 30 years.
3: I'd like to see a system which is preventative rather than reactive adding the resources onto the early intervention and prevention side of things, obviously without taking away from more acute mental health care. But if we can get in early and we can give the message that people are deserving and worthy of help early on, um, I think that will make a big difference. This is going to sound pretty ballsy, but um, my (laughs) wish for the future is that the DSM would change. I think the DSM totally fuels eating disorders, particularly with, weight categories in the BMI um, and the phrasing around atypical anorexia I'm like this DSM it needs to include people with lived experience when they're writing the new version if I could change something in the next 20 years I'm like it would be the DSM because everything flows out of that around you know access to services and diagnosis and all this sort of stuff
0: I could listen to the insights of these amazing women all day long But this is where we're going to have to wrap it up, unfortunately. If you're not satisfied, please check out Butterfly's Next 20 campaign on the website, butterfly.org.au. If you'd like to find out more about our amazing guests, all the links that you need are in the show notes. And I'd like to say a huge thank you to Claire Middleton, Shannon Calvert and Melissa Keller-Tuberg for their incredible input. For direct eating disorder and body image support, the Butterfly Helpline is there for you one 800 or if like me you remember letters better than numbers it's 1-800-ED-HOPE and if you prefer to chat online you can do that also at butterfly.org.au that website is also the place to go to access the referral database that we talked about earlier butterfly's compiled a huge list of all the professionals that you might need on your recovery team and they'd also love to hear from any professionals who would like to be listed on that referral database as well And lastly, if you want to do something to help, I'd like to encourage you to advocate for support and change. Write a letter to your local MP and tell them that this is an issue that you care deeply about. And then encourage your friends who feel the same as you to do the same. And if you want to go even further, you can donate directly to Butterfly. Again, go to butterfly.org.au to do that. Butterfly Let's Talk is an Icon Media production for Butterfly Foundation. It's produced by Camilla Beckett with lived experience support from Kate Mulray. The host, that's me, Sam Icon. My production assistant is Bronwyn Listen. Editing and sound engineering is done by our sound magician, Brendan Lenahan. To find out more about us, you can go to IconMedia.au. We've dropped the com. It's just IconMedia.au. I'm Sam Icon. Thank you so much for your company.